0: Your notebook over, we are going to look at our Wellspring purpose. Um, the purpose of Wellspring is to equip and encourage the Women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that they live gospel transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. Now, today, as we look at Titus 2 3 through 5, we're going to touch on all three disciplines as we study the passage. And it will become abundantly obvious that this, this passage demands that we are shepherding our hearts with God's word and that we're living that out in our home so that we're ready to care for one another with the word. But right now, what I want to focus on is our wellspring purpose. So one part of shepherding our hearts toward Jesus with God's word means learning what to do when sin and failure and weaknesses are exposed in our lives. And the reason we need to take a few minutes about that is that Titus 2 is a list of instructions. And we need to be prepared to respond rightly to those instructions. So what does it look like to shepherd our hearts toward Jesus in response to these commands? Well, the first thing we need to remember is that Jesus is our standard, not someone else. This is not about comparing ourselves with each other. Everything we're going to see flows out of what Christ has done in saving us by his grace. And it's for the purpose of honoring him. We are to help each other, but we are not to compare ourselves with each other. Number two, we need to remember that all obedience starts with drawing near to Jesus in humble honesty. If we feel pretty comfortable with Titus 2, we need to draw near and ask the Lord to make us sensitive to how we need to keep growing in these qualities. Or as we work our way through these verses, we may feel overwhelmed, like we just have so far to go. Maybe we are just very aware of our failures. Maybe we agree that these are good qualities, but we just don't know how to grow in them. So what do we do then? Well, we draw near to Jesus and we confess. That means that we agree with him. 1 John 1.9 says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and um, righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we go before the Lord in prayer and we're honest with him about where we are today. We ask him for eyes to see where we're not following his commands. And we agree with him that we need help. We agree with him about our sin as much as we understand about it. And we rejoice in his promises to forgive and to cleanse. And then we repent. Repentance means turning away from the sin, turning to Jesus and making a plan for obedience. Make a plan to turn away from sinful speech, to put on love and kindness. Make a plan to turn away from self-indulgence, to put on self-control, and then do it. My husband loves the phrase, plan your work and then work your plan. Um, We do that knowing what Christ has accomplished for us at the cross. We prayerfully seek his grace to change. And when we stumble, we confess again. And we repent and we evaluate how we need to strengthen our plan for obedience. Be purposeful about learning from God's word what you are called to do. What commands you need to obey. And all that you can about the particular area that you may be struggling with. We're going to talk more about shepherding our hearts away from sin as we go through the lesson. And particularly, we have a whole lesson that's going to really try to um, tear this apart, break this down, and make this clear. And it'll be January 11th. So put that on your calendar. Protect that date. You know, when other things come up, plan around that. Um, It tends to be a time where people are a little bit slow about getting into their activities for the new year, but I I want to tell you it's probably one of the most important wellsprings to come to because it's a time to sort of reset, the holidays are past, let's get back back in gear with our reading plan and uh, shepherding our hearts well in that way. If you need help before, then talk to a godly woman. There is help available. We are here to help each other. And it is work to grow. It's work to obey. It takes discipline, and it takes perseverance, but it is a path of blessing. It's a path of knowing and honoring our Savior. So as we come to Titus, we need to just recognize we all have work to do, and that's good, because we have a good master, Jesus, who is with us in this battle. So go ahead and open up your Bible to Titus. In your homework, you did an overview of the book of Titus, and you saw that it was written by Paul to Titus. For a specific purpose, to help Titus complete the work that Paul had left him to do in Crete, to set in order what remains in the churches and to appoint elders. And things need to be set in order, at least in part, because there are rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, who are upsetting whole families in the churches on Crete. There are men who profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. So part of setting the church in order is is instructing everybody in the church and everybody in families how to live. Now, if you've ever struggled with understanding how good works fit in the life of a believer, you're going to find Titus to be so helpful because the believers in Crete needed to understand this too. It's important to have a biblical understanding of good deeds, especially when there are those around you who are denying God by their deeds. So before we look at the instructions for women in Titus, let's look at a couple of passages that help us understand the role of good deeds in the life of a believer. Now Titus 2, 1-10 are instructions for specific groups in the church. Instructions for men and for women and for slaves. And then in verse 11, Paul lays out God's grace in the gospel as the foundation for good deeds. Uh, Titus 2, says, For the grace of God has appeared... zealous for good deeds did he save us because of our deeds no but he saved us to be zealous for good deeds that is gospel fruit an eagerness for good deeds now let's keep reading from verse 15 now remember when paul wrote this he didn't write it with verses and chapters so we're going to keep reading right into chapter three because he's continuing with his same line of thought Verse 14, we read about Jesus redeeming us to be his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And then verse 15, he says, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. It's really interesting, isn't it, that Jesus redeemed us and purchased us to be zealous for good deeds, but we need to be instructed and exhorted and reproved. Chapter 3, verse 1 begins, Remind them, we need Reminders. This is so descriptive of our mixed condition. Chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. See, we need to be reminded of that. To malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Now, why do we do these things? Why are we to be ready for every good deed? Verse 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves. Disobedient, deceived, enslaved, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. See, our deeds could never have saved us, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is the gospel. There's nothing good in us, but God saved us according to his mercy. And that is why believers obey. You know, we need to train ourselves and cultivate this line of reasoning. I was lost in sin. But God in his kindness saved me. He poured out his spirit on me through Jesus. He justified me. He made me his heir. I have this promise of eternal life with him. And so, I obey. That's why I obey. That's the natural overflow of what God has done in saving us. Our deeds don't add to our salvation, but they're the result of our salvation. We obey this amazing God who has only worked for our good to purchase us for himself. We don't belong to ourselves. I don't belong to me. I'm his. He has a right to rule me, and his rule is good. Look at verse 8. He's just given us the gospel, and he writes, This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful. To engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. See, Titus needed to preach the gospel and instruct and reprove and remind and speak confidently so that believers would be careful to engage in good deeds. They are good and profitable. They are not burdensome. God gives us a better way to live than we would choose for ourselves. So go ahead and turn back to chapter 2. Throughout Paul's instructions for different groups, he explains why their obedience is good and profitable. In verse 5, he says, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. In verse 8, he says, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. And then in verse 10, he says, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. See, our good deeds matter. They are what Jesus purchased us for. They are what the gospel produces in us, and they protect the reputation of God's word. And it's crown jewel, the gospel. Our lives affect how others see that. That is what's at stake. And so that is why Titus 2, verses 3-5 through is so important if we're going to talk about ministry with women. How we minister one to another. In the context of establishing and protecting the church and the families in the church, these are the instructions that are given for women in the church. They tell us the kind of women we are to be, and they tell us how we are to encourage one another. And when he saves us, he equips us to do what he commands us, by his grace and by his spirit. But we are to be zealous for these things and we are to be ready for these things and we need to teach and remind one another of these things. That's our target. So let's read Titus 2, 3-5 and be instructed and be reminded that Christ redeemed us to be his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Now that we've actually read the verses, I want to make just a couple more observations about the context to help us be receptive as we possibly can be to what we're going to see. First of all, you know, we could look at this and and conclude that it's only for married women with children. Or we could conclude that it's written to all women, um, which would naturally include wives and mothers. Well there's actually a strong case that he really had all women in mind, um, based on what we've seen in the context, because these are instructions for the whole church, to set the whole church in order. And any church will naturally include women in a variety of seasons. It's a lot like where Paul is um, talking about elder qualifications, and he refers to um, the man's role as a husband and as a father. Well, that doesn't mean that a man has to be married with children to serve as an elder. There's, uh, it appears that there were men in the early church who were, <coughs> excuse me, not married. and <coughs> that didn't disqualify them, but marriage and children are mentioned in the qualifications because many men are married with children. So Titus 2, 3-5 is for all women. It doesn't matter what season we're in. And then there's one more observation about the setting that we really need to keep in mind. I've made the mistake many times of thinking that Titus 2 is something that would work really well for a woman who's married to a really godly man. Or or maybe Titus II would work really well for a woman who grew up in a Christian home and her mom was just a model Titus II woman. Well, then of course it makes sense that this would work well for her. But that wasn't the context in Crete. This was a baby church, first generation, with baby believers. The book of Titus shows us that there were rebellious men in the church, upset families, greed. The people of Crete had a reputation for being liars, gluttons. People in the church needed reproof. There was a lack of self-control, it appears, particularly with alcohol. There were those who loved to argue. They were factious. And these women were part of that, and they were saved out of that, and they may have been daughters or wives of men like that. Their husbands may not have been believers. And Paul doesn't excuse them. He equips them. He equips them to honor God's word in those circumstances. I think that's pretty amazing because I think it's very easy to think that these things just wouldn't work in a marriage with a husband who doesn't lead or he's not godly or whatever. You know, we kind of like to make our exception clauses. But this is exactly what God has given us no matter what our circumstances are. And that does not mean that it's easy. And it doesn't mean that we're not going to need help and encouragement. But God's design is good. It's a good design for every season and every circumstance. Okay, so in our notes we see a summary of the passage. The Gospel is honored through transformed older women training transformed younger women. Titus 2 instructs us in godliness. And it instructs us as women to be involved in one another's lives. Our relationships with each other are important. Okay, on the outline. Number one, what is meant by older women? Well, the text doesn't give us a specific age. Commentators say it could primarily refer to women whose children are grown and out of the house. But all of us are older than somebody. So these qualities are for all of us. Those of you who are youngest here, you know, you have a real opportunity to live this way so that the little girls at church grow up admiring godliness, biblical womanhood. And as we get older, that continues. Each season brings new perspectives that need to be shared with younger women. We all need to be growing in displaying the gospel's work in us and in passing that on to younger women and girls in our homes and in our church. So first, we are to be reverent in our behavior. The word reverent is related to the idea of being suitable for the temple. It means being set apart and holy. Priests were set apart. They were to draw near to the presence of God in the temple. Well, Paul does not mean here that the older woman is a priestess, but that everything she does is done with a view towards worshiping God. It's what's described in 1 Corinthians 10.31 when it says, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We are to see all of our lives as sacred and set apart. So how do we do that? You know, reverence doesn't just happen because we get older. We have to be committed to being in the Word and drawing near to God through His Word. And a reverent woman is a doer of the Word, not just a hearer, but one who is obedient and growing in her obedience. As the truth of the gospel saturates our hearts and takes up residence there, We press on to grow in a reverent love for God and to overflow with holiness in every aspect of who we are. You know, reverent behavior is not a popular character trait to aspire to in our culture, is it? It probably wasn't popular in Crete either. Um, It sounds kind of old-fashioned, but this is what God's Word says. We're to be reverent. It's what the Gospel intends to produce in us. So is that our desire, to be reverent Women. Set apart women. Women who are concerned for holiness of life in our home and in our church. Now, this first quality, being reverent in our behavior, it might be functioning like an overarching quality, kind of like when Paul. Starts off the elder qualifications by saying above reproach, and then he lists what the qualifications are. In the same way, he tells us we are to be reverent in our behavior, and then he goes on to list what that looks like. So after reverent behavior, we say, we see number two, that we are not to be malicious gossips or slanderers. Now the Greek word is diabolos, meaning devil. It's used 34 times in the New Testament for Satan. He's the one who accuses and slanders. He's the one who slanders us before God in God's presence, and he slanders God to us. His intention is to divide. Go ahead and flip over to 1 John 2. Now, in Revelation 12.10, it says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren who accuses them before our God day and night. You know, any fault, any unfaithfulness, any sin—all our grounds for the devil's accusations. Can we be like that? Can it just be so easy to see others' faults, especially when they're sinning against us? You know, this is really dangerous because it's so easy to do. But we have been saved out of that. Um, our example is not Satan, but it's Jesus. First John two. Verse 1 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus knows all our sin, everything for which we could be rightly accused. He knows it better than we do because he satisfied God's wrath against it. That's what propitiation means. Remember that from our um, mixed condition lesson. But he does not stand as our accuser. He, in his righteousness, is our advocate with the Father. He pleads our case. He is recounting the work that he accomplished on our behalf in his death and resurrection that we might not stand condemned before God, but rather forgiven. And that's the pattern for us. Rather than giving any room in our thoughts and our words for accusations, for critical, condemning attitudes, by God's grace, let's be zealous advocates of God's grace in the gospel toward others. You know, when we are, we will find ourselves committed to loving rather than accusing, wanting to help rather than slander, working to unite and reconcile rather than divide. We will find ourselves praying instead of gossiping. So what accusations might we entertain in our hearts that might overflow into our words that we need to be on the watch for? Well, just a few things to think about. We might be tempted to judge others or keep a record of wrongs, mull over someone else's shortcomings. It could just be a critical attitude, assuming the worst. When we think that way, we are very... We are in great danger of accusing others, just like Satan does. We need to be concerned with how we use our words in our households and how we use our words about our households. We need to be concerned with how we use our words and the effect of our words electronically. Um, We need to be concerned with the words that we just think about saying. You know, It's not okay just to rehearse it in our mind, even if it doesn't come out of our mouth. Uh, And we need to be concerned with the words that we're willing to listen to as well. If gossip is finding a place in our lives and we need to go before the Lord, recognize what he is showing us about our heart, we need to repent. We need to put on gracious words, merciful words, words that protect the honor of God's word and advocate well for others. Okay, number three, we see... Um, in verse 3, we, we read, Not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine. Those two qualities are linked with that word nor, and there's a connection here. Not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine. It's because when one has too much to drink, um, self-control can easily be negotiated away. And one area where that can be seen is with the tongue. And that's what we just talked about. The effect of alcohol can lose one can cause one to lose restraint over her words. Now, nowhere does Paul totally forbid wine, but in multiple places he condemns drunkenness. Drunkenness is sin. Now, the word enslaved is a term of bondage. Now, why does he warn the women about this? He has four instructions for older women, and out of the four, here's one of them. Well, perhaps it's because... A woman may turn to alcohol thinking that it's going to help her deal with life's struggles. You know, I'm tired, stressed out, I'm hurt, I'm angry, I'm lonely. You know, I just want I just want to escape a little bit. But if that is where she turns over and over again, she may become enslaved. And of course, wine is not the only thing that can enslave. We saw in Titus 3.3 that before we were Christ followers, we were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. In Christ, we've been set free from that enslavement. We are slaves of Jesus. So if we are relying on anything for comfort other than Christ, shopping, food, excessive work, relationships, maybe social networking, entertainment... We need to turn from seeking our comfort in those things and choose to find our joy in following Jesus. Not that those things are bad, but any comfort that they give is only temporary and they can can take us away from relying on Jesus. Now, we've already said that drunkenness is sin, but this is just a word of wisdom. If you drink... Be careful with your use of alcohol. Just because it's permissible doesn't mean it's beneficial to you or the people around you. If it's flowing freely and frequently, it's just worth evaluating. If you're not sure, you talk to your husband, talk to a sister in Christ. Um, that can just help you evaluate your heart and your motives in that. Um, it's, just, it, it's a good just first to evaluate. Do I handle alcohol in a way that... That Jesus is getting the most glory from my life. We need to think about the influence it has on how we shepherd our own hearts um, and the influence that our use of alcohol has on others, about how it impacts our gospel witness, how it affects others in our household, in our church, how it affects um, younger women. Um, Can we say, follow me as I follow Christ in the way I use alcohol? So, a reverent woman is a woman who shepherds her heart to find her fulfillment and her joy, and her comfort, and her peace in her Savior, who delights in obeying the Lord. That's the implication of a gospel in a woman's life. This kind of woman is equipped to give hope to younger women, to testify that Jesus really is everything that we need, and that we can train our souls to find that satisfaction in him. Okay. Finally, number four, Paul says that older women are to teach what is good. She's a teacher of winsome goodness. I really like that phrase, winsome goodness, in both her words and in her example. And so, of course, where does that come from? But God's Word. The Word gives us God's wisdom. Teaching what is good is not just giving our opinions and experiences, although there are times when that can be helpful. Um, You know, we can sometimes be tempted to think we're not qualified to encourage and train another woman because maybe we haven't experienced what they're going through. And it's true that at times it is helpful to have someone who can identify with a particular challenge. Maybe they've got a medical issue, or they understand what it's like to care for aging parents or something. You know, we all have a lot of unique circumstances. But if God has put us in that role of encouraging and comforting and teaching another woman, then we need to give out the truth that we do have. We have God's Word. Second Corinthians one four says that God comforts us in all our affliction, So that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. Often the good that we have to teach another woman is something the Lord has taught us as we've walked through a trial. And this verse says that the comfort that God has given us is what we give, regardless of what affliction we learned it in. God comforts us through his word, revealing who he is, and all that he's done for us in the gospel, and the sure and certain hope that we have for eternity. And so we need to be women who point other women to God's word, to meeting with him in his word, to growing in their trust in him, their obedience towards him, and they will find him to be faithful. Okay, so how are we doing as older women? Well, there is a list in the notes to help us evaluate, and I'm going to encourage you just to spend some time looking at those on your own. But as you evaluate, remember what you want to look for is growth and what direction you're moving in. If you see godliness growing, then praise God. That is the work of His grace in your life. And where there is sin and there is weakness, then remember it is His kindness to show us that. And so we confess and we repent and we seek God's grace to change. Okay, so we made it through the older women. So now we got to move into our younger women. And we're at number two on our outline. What transformed older women must train the young women to be. So verse four begins, So that they, the older women, may encourage the young women. Now encourage here means to train, to advise, to urge. It's an ongoing influence. Now when we're in the position of being a younger woman, younger woman and I speak for myself here, We may not always see our need to be trained. I just really want to urge you, I want to urge all of us, cultivate a heart of humility and being teachable. It is not natural. And you will not learn this in school. In school, it is a weakness to not know something. In the workplace, it is a weakness to not know something. But believers are disciples. That means we're learners. So look for what you can learn from godly women that God has put in your life. Learn to ask questions. How would you do that? How would you learn how to do that? Why did you do it that way? Christ has placed us in a body, and sometimes through the most unexpected women, the Lord will teach us lessons that we never would have gone looking for. It might just be a conversation. It might be a woman's example. It might be an ongoing relationship. Um, but Titus 2 shows us the importance of, and value of cultivating these meaningful relationships with other women in the body. So let's read verses four and five. It says so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God may not be dishonored. We are to train and urge the young women to make deliberate, deliberate use of every aspect of life to honor God's word that's what this is saying so the first two to love her husband and love her children address the gospel's influence um, that a married woman has in her closest relationships now even if you're not married or you don't have children you can think about what it looks like to pour the love of Jesus into your closest household relationships In the Greek, these words are literally husband-lover and children-lover. It describes who the woman is, not just what she does. So let's look at what it means to be a husband-lover. Well, in a married woman's life, this is a priority, and it can be taught. This love is not based on emotion. It means choosing to pursue devotion to your husband, to cherish him, to be friends with him, as much as it depends on you. It's a tender affection that overflows from first loving Christ. It's lavishing God's grace on him. And each wife must learn to love her own husband. That means you get to know him and study him and ask him, how can you be most helpful to him? I just have to tell you that a few years ago, very carelessly, I asked my husband, honey, how could I serve you around here? In my mind, thinking I was doing a pretty good job of it. And he said, Could you just pick up the hair on the bathroom floor every day? I hadn't married 20 years, and I never thought to ask my husband how I might serve him better with how I kept, took care of the bathroom. Okay, it's a silly thing, but praise God that he told me and that he was so gracious with me for 20 years. You know, because I just kind of let it pile up there and clean it once a week when I'm doing the rest of the floors. And it's just not hard to pick it up every day. But ask your husband, You know, it might just be the silliest little thing to you that just could bless him. Okay, well, love also means showing respect for our husband. Now, listen listen to how the Amplified Version defines this idea of respect by adding synonyms from the dictionary. Okay, this is Ephesians 5.33. Let the wife see that she respects and reverences her husband, that she notices him, regards him, honors him, Prefers him, venerates, and esteems him, and that she defers to him, praises him, and loves and admires him exceedingly. You know, loving and respecting our husband means treating him like he's someone special because he is. God has given him a very important role in your life, and we need to cultivate it from the inside out to turn even. To turn from even thinking disrespectful, critical thoughts about our husbands. Cultivate thankfulness, forgiveness, admiration. Remember, he is made in the image of God. And remember, you can identify with his battle with sin. You know what it's like. When we do, then we are prepared to love our husband with respectful facial expressions tone of voice, body language, our words, or maybe our lack of words. (laughs) Don't compare your husband to your dad or to any other godly man that's not loving. Love him for who he is, where he is, without expectations, without criticism. Well, that brings us to number two, which is children lovers. Now this obviously applies to mothers, but any of us, again as women, can be women who love the children around us. And this is a love that can be taught. Once again, it is selfless, it's affectionate, it involves learning to train our children in light of God's grace. And with all of these, we need to remember that it is a process. These things take time to grow, and we especially need to remember that in parenting. So that means first and most that we need to be women who rely on God's grace and that we are seeking to be gracious moms as a result of shepherding our own hearts with God's word so that we're soaking our children's lives with God's word and his gospel. It means showing our children how much we love Jesus. It's teaching them how to live and it's rescuing them from their sinful behavior with godly discipline. Now, what are some ways that we might be unloving to our children, maybe without even realizing it? Well, it is not loving to overindulge our children, or to ignore their sin, or to try to buy their affection, or their compliance with promises or treats. It's not loving to be inconsistent, you know, basing our discipline maybe more on our mood or our convenience rather than their need to be trained. And it's not loving to only discipline wrong behavior without teaching right behavior and giving them the opportunity to learn and practice that. Again, we're talking about the direction that we're growing in, right? Not perfection. We are loving our children when we help them understand how our standards reflect God's standards. The moral reason why behind the behaviors that we're teaching them. We are not loving our children when we do not humbly seek their forgiveness when we sin against them. And it's also not loving to respond to our children's sin with our own sin. And I have to tell you, as I say all of those, guilty. <laughs> guilty is charged. Um, I'm guilty of unbiblical parenting, of not loving my children biblically. All of these at one time or another. Inconsistency. Impatience, anger, laziness. But what's our hope? right? Jesus, he's died in our place. He has set us free from sin. He's forgiven us. He's redeemed us from every lawless deed. We saw that in Titus 2.14. Not if, but when we sin against our children, even if it's in response to their sin, we still need to confess it, and we need to ask their forgiveness, and we need to share with them the hope of the gospel that is our hope and that can be their hope as well. This kind of love is costly. It takes time and it takes practice. It's not convenient. Um, And you do have to learn it. But in the process, you learn to look to your Heavenly Father more and more and to cry out to Him for help and to search His Word for wisdom. And it's never too late. You know, some of us didn't become believers until our kids were adults. And so we live out what the gospel's done in us now in front of them and our grandkids. And we proclaim the gospel and we pray and we trust God. And I am just really encouraged. so many of you do this. You love your children and you love your husbands well. Well, let's look at sensible, number three. This next quality that older women are to teach young women is being sensible. The ESV translates this word as self-controlled. Now sensible means letting the gospel impact our minds. It's having a sound mind rather than basing our decisions on emotion or impulse. And it's a quality that is necessary in every other part of our lives. Proverbs twenty-five twenty-eight says, like a city that is broken into and without walls, is a man who has no control over his spirit. Self-control offers protection from all kinds of sin and foolishness. It's so important that the word is used three times in the book of Titus alone. We need self-control to be wise with our sleep, with our money, our time, our eating. Our responsibilities, our thoughts, our emotions, our responses, everything. So, how do we do that? If ever there was an area of, in where it's evident in my own life that I am in a mixed condition and that obedience is still something for which I must battle and work, it is in this area of self-control. Any area of ongoing struggle in our lives requires vigilance. So what might that include? Well, um, for one, we need to realize that confessing our sin to the Lord is a wonderful start, Um, but it may not represent godly sorrow over our sin. Second Corinthians 7 helps explain that. We need to ask ourselves, why do I regret it? Do we just regret the consequences of not using self-control? See, if that's the case, I actually need to confess to God that even my confession is self-centered. And we need to battle and plead with God for a heart that is broken over the offense that our sin is to him as a holy God. For a heart that's grieved at how costly my sin was to Christ on the cross. Now, one thing that can help us battle for that heart of genuine repentance is to prayerfully and and biblically examine the sins that we might be dragging along with our other sin, particularly self-control in this example. For example, the fruit of the Spirit includes self-control. So when we're not using self-control, it's like a red warning light on our dashboard telling us that we're actually resisting the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You know, that's serious. That's a dangerous place to be. The Holy Spirit is the one who regenerated us and brought us to Christ. This, this is the Spirit that we're commanded to keep in step with, not to quench or grieve the Holy Spirit. And he's the one that we're resisting when we are refusing to use self-control. Now when I put it that way, all of a sudden my sin alarms me. I just can't call it a little mistake anymore, right? It wasn't just a little slip. I was resisting God's Holy Spirit. Now another question that can help us get to the root of our sin is to ask ourselves, whom are we worshiping when we're being self-indulgent rather than being self-controlled? Or again, indulging in any sin? And I'll tell you what, the answer a lot of times is me. I'm serving myself when I sin. And if I'm serving and worshiping myself, then I'm an idolater. We are giving to ourselves what God alone deserves. We are glory thieves. And Christ had to suffer and die for our idolatry. Well, our battle for self-control is not done just because we've identified our sin or even confessed it. We now need to preach the gospel to ourselves from scripture and the implications of the gospel for our new affections. A new identity, our new abilities. We need to soak ourselves in the transforming truths of the Word, which will counter the lies and the excuses that we are so tempted to make for ourselves when we allow ourselves to go down a path of sin. And then finally, we need to remember that our battle with sin is a daily battle. When we meet with the Lord in prayer, we need to be confessing our sin and consistently searching God's word for his truth about what should be controlling us. And we prepare to obey God. We can memorize verses. We can put memos on our phone and sticky notes on our cabinets or on our desk that remind us that God's grace in the gospel instructs us and enables us to be controlled by the love of Christ, not a love for ourselves. God has given us himself. And there is satisfaction in knowing and drawing near to him, drinking the river of his delights that no self-indulgence can ever compete with. And we're weak. And so if we want to see headway in our lives against sin, then we need to stay in the battle every day. And that displays the power of his gospel in our lives. Okay, that brings us to pure. Turn to 1 John chapter 3. Now, pure means holy. Holy set apart, pure, inside and out, uncontaminated. It's a practical holiness and purity. Now, this word for pure is used to describe both God's wisdom as well as Jesus himself. This is a weighty word. There is no higher standard. So how do we learn to be pure? How do we teach young women to pursue a purity like this? Absolutely unspoiled, even down to the center of one's being. Well, praise God, 1 John 3 helps us. 1 John 3 verse 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself, just as he is pure. See, anticipating Christ's return motivates us to an ongoing lifestyle of purification, of becoming more and more pure. First Timothy five twenty-two translates this word "free from sin." See, growing in purity requires both an ongoing, deliberate commitment to putting off sin and to putting on obedience and holiness, like we just talked about with self-control, and it requires. That we keep our hope fixed on Jesus' return. That we continue to remind ourselves that he will appear and that we will be like him and we will see him as he is. So if we're going to grow in purity, we need to ask, are we aware of the impurities that we're tempted by? What does tempt us? It could be a temptation to impurity in our thought life, in our speech. It could be in our entertainment or how we dress it could be in how we interact with men or how we think about them you know we need just to be diligent to flee the temptation and to repent of sin because Christ has already given himself for us to redeem us from that impurity and to purify us for himself all right number 5 is workers at home this describes a woman who has a heart for her household who understands the value of the work And the relationships and the opportunities in our home. The word is actually an adjective. You could say we are to be homeworking women. It describes the kind of women we are to be in Christ. And again, it can be learned. Now this might be the quality that we're most uncomfortable with. And that might be because we have a tendency to reduce it to something kind of black or white. You know, do you work outside the home? Or do you not work outside the home? You're either one or you're the other. But there's so much more that we need to consider. If you are not employed outside um, your home, then you can't automatically conclude that you are a worker at home. And if we are employed outside our home, we can't conclude that we can't be workers at home or that we don't have a responsibility to be a worker at home. This is a heart quality that is necessary for the honor of God's word. Now when we look at the bigger context of the book of Titus, remember, Paul is concerned about the influence of rebellious men who are upsetting families. And in other places in scripture, Paul expresses a similar concern for homes, and especially the women there. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul describes homes with weak women who are weighed down with sin and led by their impulses. These are not women who are pursuing purity or self-control. These weak women make their homes a target for evil men. See, These women are home, but they are not protecting the honor of God's word by the way they work there. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul says that there is a temptation for young widows not to work in their homes, but to be idle, to go from house to house and gossip. And if they do, they are giving the adversary an opportunity to speak reproachfully. Now certainly, feminism has had a huge role in the past century and trying to downplay the importance of the home and a woman's role in it. But this was a problem back when Paul was writing these letters. This is not a new problem. This is not a new attack. But biblically, the household is important. If you survey the New Testament, I think we've talked about this before, but households are noted for hosting and serving churches and extending hospitality, training children, teaching the gospel, instructing in sound doctrine and godliness, Refreshing believers, missionaries, and those who are in prison. The home is important to God's work in the church. It's essential, and as women, we have a role as home-working women. We don't want our homes to hinder the work or reputation of the gospel, but rather we want, them, want to bring honor to God's word and to be useful to the church. And that's what hap- that's what happens when we value and esteem the work of the home. When we're faithful in our homes. To nurture and serve those who live there. So, this quality is not negotiable for any woman in any season of life, just like the other qualities. You know, we don't look at self control and say that we only have to worry about that in a certain season, right? Or only part of the time. It's talking about the kind of women we are, and this quality is the same way. Um, So, this is a call to have a heart for the work of the home and to be diligent in it. So what does the work of a household include? Well, for a married woman with children at home, the home is where she loves and nurtures her family. And we already said that that takes time. It means choosing to find contentment in helping our husband and shepherding our children. It means being faithful with the work that a household requires, learning diligence in managing the many tasks. And there are seasons when the work of the home leaves very little room for anything else, even very good things. Now, sometimes for a season, under well-thought-out circumstances, a couple might find it best for the family to have the wife working outside the home. But that's a weighty decision, and it just needs to be made carefully. Letting this call to be a home-working woman inform that decision. Um, You know, you might benefit from seeking wise counsel on that decision because there just needs to be a way for a woman to be a home-working woman if she's um, to be a homeworking woman, whatever her season of life is, um, if she's married and she's working outside the home, or if she's single, working outside the home, or going to school, um, if she's home full time, where there are still things that can take us away from being home workers. We can be overcommitted. We can be lazy. We can be careless with the shepherding of our own hearts. Paul was concerned for that. Um, so how does that leave us to think about work outside the home? Well, think about the Proverbs 31 woman. She was busy. She was buying fields. She was selling garments. She was thinking about people beyond her home. And it's clear from Proverbs 31 that that was not contradictory to her being a worker at home. She was caring for the needs of her household. And anything she did outside of the household was for the benefit of her household. Um... Lydia is another example in Acts 16. She was a businesswoman. She was most likely a single woman. And she was hospitable. She pleaded with Paul for the opportunity to serve him in her home. Um, another example is Priscilla. She was married to a man named Aquila. Um, they served as tent makers. That was their vocation. Um, and She was also a fellow worker in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul calls her. And she and her husband hosted a church in their home. So she had a vocation, and she had ministry, and those things were not hindrances to her role as a home worker. There are circumstances that may demand a woman work outside the home. If you're single, living away from your parents, or your husband is disabled, maybe you're a single mom, or if you and your husband have decided that working outside the home is the best thing for your home and your family right now, that it's necessary, or it's what you need to do to submit to your husband. Um, if that's you... Then be a homeworking woman who also works outside your home. And do your work well. Do your homework well and do your vocational work well. And do it without guilt. And do it with all your heart as serving the Lord. That's what Colossians three tells us to do. And you know what? It's difficult. It's difficult to be a homeworker, whether you're working outside the home or whether you're home full time. It's challenging. Um And we need to battle every day to flood our hearts with God's word. Um, You know, if you're working outside the home, you may have to get really creative. And there may be a lot of other good things that you need to turn down. But you can trust your Savior, your Master. He's good. If this is what he has for you, his grace is sufficient for you. If this is his plan for you right now, then um, his plan is for you to give him glory in what you're doing and to be made more like Jesus through your circumstances. If you're not working outside the home, then be careful. Shepherd your heart diligently. Don't be one of those weak women who are weighed down by sins and led by their impulses. Don't be idle, but protect the honor of God's word and your gospel influence in your home by managing your home well, valuing that work, being diligent in that work. The work in your home is among the good works that God prepared in advance for you to do as you nurture those relationships and serve the people who live there. You know when we understand the role of the homework homework, it can just be so helpful. Um, it helps us evaluate our priorities and our commitments on a heart level um, so that we just can grow in our availability, to serve and love others in that role. Okay. Uh, if you struggle with seeing the value or the joy in that, find an older woman to help you grow in that, to cultivate that. And if you're married and you have any concerns about how this plays out in your home, there's a, a link there to where Scott Maxwell teaches on this passage for the men so they can help their women, help their women, <laughs> <laughs> help their wives um, grow in Titus 2 character. <laughs> yeah, oh, just their wife. Um, and, and you might want to listen to that. Ask your husband if he would listen to that with you um, so that you just have a common understanding of what God's word has to say about that. Okay, that brings us to kind. This word kind is most often translated good in the New Testament. It's a goodness that comes from the heart, and then it overflows into words and actions that benefit others. Jesus said in Luke 6.45 that the good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. So we're back at discipline one again. The way our hearts get filled with good treasure is by meeting with God in his word. You might be familiar with the story of Mary and Martha. If you're not, you know where to go. Um, When Martha complained that her sister Mary wasn't helping her, Jesus responded by saying that Mary had chosen the good part. It's the same word. She chose the good part when she chose to sit and listen to Jesus. So discipline one is the greatest good we can do for our own hearts. When we draw near to God and His word, He transforms us to be those who overflow with His goodness. Um, And again, like we've seen with so many of these heart qualities, that goodness will permeate our words. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good. Good for edification. That means building up according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. See, when we are good and kind, it will show in our words. We'll be thoughtful and self-controlled and intentional about speaking with grace so that others are built up and encouraged. We'll be wise about when to speak those words. And kindness will also show in what we do, like what we do as home workers. It's interesting how kindness follows right on the heels of being a worker at home. Because I think often our heart attitude is most clearly revealed right in our homes with those household relationships. And sadly, very often our household is where we can be most careless about being kind. We can start keeping track in our mind maybe of who has served more. Or we might not think it's important to be careful with our tone of voice our facial expressions. Um, We just might not be intentional about expressing kindness with our words and our actions, but since genuine kindness is something that God produces in our lives and it flows out from our hearts, then it cannot be based on how someone else is acting or how they're treating us. It's not a reaction to those around us, but it's a reflection of our Heavenly Father. Jesus said in Luke 6.35, Love your enemies and do good. Same word again. And lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. Why? For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. That's a high call. That's a daunting call. And we're weak. We cannot do this on our own. But soaking our hearts with the gospel has the power to produce in us Christ-like kindness. Well, that brings us to number seven, being subject to their own husbands. So let me ask you a question. How do you view submission? That word subject, being subject and submit, it's the same word in the Greek. Do you find the idea of submission appealing or does it make you cringe? You know, if you view it negatively, it might be because you've only seemed a warped Or incomplete version of it. Genuine submission brings immeasurable benefit to our marriages and families and tremendous honor to the gospel. Submission is relevant whether you are married or single. A biblical understanding of submission prepares us to counsel our married friends, it prepares us for marriage if God has that for us. And scripture also describes submission in other relationships, in the home, in the workplace, in the government, in the church. And though it takes different forms, there are a lot of principles that will still hold true. So the word subject or submit in the Greek is hupotasso, and it means to voluntarily place oneself under. And that's important to know. It is not our husband's responsibility to make us submit, although he has the freedom to remind us if we're struggling. But the command is for us to do this voluntarily, to line ourselves up under his leadership. Submission did not begin in the New Testament with Paul. It did not begin when sin entered the world. It didn't even begin at creation when God made the woman to be a helper suitable to to man. Submission goes back even before that. Because submission is represented in the very character of God. Look at the quote in your outline from Wayne Grudem. I'm going to just read that. The idea of headship and submission never began. It has always existed in the eternal nature of God himself. And in this most basic of all authority relationships, authority is not based on gifts or ability. It is just there. The relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one of leadership and authority on the one hand, and voluntary, willing, joyful submission to that authority on the other hand. We can learn from this that submission to a rightful authority is a noble virtue. It's a privilege. It's something good and desirable. It is the virtue that has been demonstrated by the eternal Son of God forever. It is his glory, the glory of the Son as he relates to the Father. And to further display this glory, God instituted a husband's leadership and a wife's submission at the beginning of creation, even before sin entered the world. And then Ephesians 5 reveals God's ultimate intention for headship and submission in marriage. It's to reflect the relationship of Christ and the church. This command is not punishment, and neither is it optional. God determined that we are to voluntarily place ourselves under our husband's authority. God designed it for his glory. So, if submission is such a good thing, why can it be so difficult? We could point to a lot of things. There are things that definitely present obstacles, but ultimately, the biggest struggle to submit comes from our own heart. We love to rule ourselves. We love to trust in ourselves. We love to think that we are right. And we need to realize that our battle with submission is not a battle with our husband or whatever authority we're under. It's a battle ultimately with the sin that is in our own hearts. That is our adversary. Even when it feels to us like our adversary is a person, we need to remember Ephesians 5.22. It says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, as to the Lord see the Lord is the one to whom we are entrusting ourselves when we submit and that's where our focus needs to be not on whether our husband is worthy or not in our estimation but on the Lord's trustworthiness he is the one that we are trusting when we submit now let's talk a little bit more about what submission means We saw that the definition is to voluntarily place oneself under, so it's something that we do willingly and without being contentious. If you have not looked at what the book of Proverbs says about being contentious, that is worth a little bit of extra study. But the word contentious means exhibiting a wearisome tendency to quarrels and disputes. A wearisome tendency. Just don't know when to quit. Proverbs 19.13 says the contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. You know, it's just really wise to cultivate the habit of agreeing as often as we can. It doesn't mean that we don't ever speak up, that we don't we can't share our opinion, especially about major decisions. We do need to speak up in appropriate, helpful, respectful ways. But we shouldn't make it a habit to think that every decision our husband makes needs to be discussed with us. You know, we don't want to just browbeat him. Just because your husband doesn't do something the way you would, doesn't make his way wrong. In Genesis 2, God made Eve to be a suitable helper to Adam. And so that can help us evaluate, am I being helpful? Or am I just being wearisome? What would my husband say if I asked him? Well now, being subject is an honorable role in which we invest the full measure of our energy, our ability, and godly character Carolyn Mahaney points out that the woman was called the B-man's helpmate, not his helpless mate. God's intention is that our humble service to our husbands will include supporting him, contributing our ideas and insights when it's helpful, encouraging him, praying for him, at times helping him see things more biblically perhaps. And it's also important to understand that submission doesn't mean that we follow our husband's leadership into sin. If we see a sinful pattern in our husband that's detrimental to our families, but our husband doesn't agree, we need to respectfully appeal, prayerfully appeal to him. Ask him, can together, can we get counsel on this? Can we go to an elder or to a godly couple? Being a suitable helper in the truest sense of the word means requesting assistance when we're concerned about the consequences to our family of our husband's choices. But always, always, that needs to be done examining ourselves for the log in our own eye before we try to help our husband with the speck in his. Well, Let's finish looking at being subject with a look at 1 Peter 3. Verse 1 says in the same way, and he's pointing back to First Peter 2 where he's looking at Christ at the cross. And he says in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands. So that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Now primarily this is referring to the unbelieving husband. But that doesn't exclude the disobedient, believing husband. You know, those times when maybe our husband doesn't communicate the way we would like, or he's not appreciative, or affectionate, or helpful, or whatever it is. What is the instruction, even for this kind of a husband? Be submissive. Let them be won by your pure, respectful behavior. Verse 3 says, Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Submission begins in the heart by cultivating a gentle and quiet spirit, and that's why discipline one is so foundational. There's no way to cultivate genuine biblical submission without faithfully submitting ourselves to God in his word. We need to understand that there is protection when a woman comes under the headship of her husband. And we can't assume that all young women know and understand this. Um, It's just so contrary to the world's messages. Older women need to understand, and we need to help younger women understand, that it puts God's character on display. It strengthens families, it strengthens our church, and it protects the reputation of God's word. It matters. It's about our heart and our willingness to trust God and submit to him by submitting to our husband. Well, that brings us to number three. What happens when transformed women are all they should be? Well, why do we as women need to be careful how we live? Well, it's because the world needs to see the power of the gospel at work. It needs to see that the gospel is the truth that leads to godliness, that it frees us from every lawless deed and that it purifies us and it makes us, the church, a people for Jesus' own possession who are zealous for good deeds. See, the world needs to see that we belong to Christ. It needs to see his image lived out in us. Titus 3.3 3 says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. We used to be just like the world around us. But we've been saved. And how will the world know that? By us living obediently to Titus 2.3-5. We are not what we once were. And that is a powerful witness to the world, that God's word is worth honoring. John MacArthur sums it up, uh, the importance of it, this way. He says, the world judges the gospel, which is the heart of the word of God, by the character of the people who believe and claim to be transformed by it. Alright, that's it. Let's pray.